again thankful that you're here uh, this morning. Beautiful day. If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and grab it and go to Matthew 18. We're going to be where Taylor was with our children a little bit earlier as we continue our summer series, which we've been calling Summer School. We're kicking a couple weeks off of that, but this is our journey with Jesus where he takes his disciples aside or the disciples come to him and he gives them specific and unique teaching that maybe isn't to the crowds. So as his followers, his disciples, that's what we consider ourselves. We are to be disciple makers and be disciples. We are spending our summer sitting at the feet of Jesus. So two weeks ago at a Cleveland Guardians baseball game, uh, a, a guy with, he's a YouTuber, I know this isn't his real name, but a guy who's a YouTuber by the name of Sir Yacht, you probably know where this is going, Sir Yacht, was throwing out the first pitch. He got up on the mound and he got ready to throw out that ceremonial first pitch and he had this really demonstrative wind-up. When he was just at the top of his wind-up ready to come around and try to throw that strike, his foot slipped and he fell to the left and the ball flailed way off to the left and he fell flat on his back in front of the whole crowd. Of course, the whole crowd cheered and laughed and it was funny. Then in the next few days, as you know, social media blew up with it. You probably saw it somewhere on a feed if you watch Instagram Reels or if you're on TikToker or whatever it's called and doing all that stuff. You probably saw it. But the thing was, and I'm not sure Sir Yacht has ever really admitted this, is it was fake. You could get up there and throw a pitch and look good and probably not change your social media platform. But when you get up there and make a fool of yourself, right... Sir Yacht goes viral. That was his goal. To get a little more greatness. To get a taste of the glory. To get his 15 minutes. To increase his followers. It was just about a few days after that. That at a major concert. A young lady made her way to the front of the stage. She had seats near the front. But during a particular song. This young lady got near the stage. And then she hurled a plastic bag up onto the stage. When the plastic bag hit the stage, a puff of dust came up out of it. The bag was full of her mom's ashes. It was such a striking thing that the the singer, that everybody was there to watch, watch and enjoy the concert, stopped and didn't know what to do. Long story short, after the concert, the woman was asked, why did you do that? And you guessed it. She said, well, I wanted to go viral. I wanted to increase my TikTok followers. It's crazy, isn't it? We live in this world that although we would like to think we're separate from in some ways, but we are desperate for greatness, aren't we? Maybe not in the extremes of Sir Yacht and that young lady, but all of us. We seek greatness. We want to matter. We want to belong. We want to be well thought of. We want to hold position in the minds of others. We want to hold a certain position in our own. And we probably do this greatness dance, this greatness posturing thousands of times a day. We do it in our posting, in our positioning, in our posturing with each other. And maybe you're doubting that. Maybe you're saying this morning, well, that's not me. Which I might even doubt that because I don't want to admit it. But I want you to ask yourself, how many millions of times have we spent comparing ourselves to others? How many thousands of times have you 
silently thought yourself better than so-and-so? How many times have we silently judged? How many times have we gossiped or spoke poorly about another? What is gossip if it's not just the pursuit, right? Gossip is simply the pursuit of holding others lower and yourself greater. Gossip is a twisted form of self-promotion. It was just on the men's retreat just a couple days ago, a conviction about my own childishness came into my mind and in my heart as we were spending time with the Lord. I confess to the men, and I confess it to you, that, that I love to try to be the hero of the story. I try to twist my words and twist stories to try to make myself at the center, at the spotlight. I like to win. I like to be well thought of. And the embarrassing part of that, there's even a more embarrassing part of that, is I even like to be the hero sometimes at the expense of somebody else's loss. And I tell you that this morning because I need Jesus. He's the hero. And I need this teaching this morning. I need His grace. I need His mercy, and you do too. And I need to be taught a better way. So we're going to go back to school this morning. We're going to sit at Jesus' feet. And we're going to get an answer to this question that we've all asked and His disciples asked directly. Who's great? What makes someone great in the kingdom of Jesus? Let's pray together one more time. I want to ask for God's mercy on us as we discuss a tough topic today. Father, just be with us. We take that posture. We, We kneel. Maybe we need to really kneel Maybe just in our hearts and our minds, we've got to just take that posture of open hands, open minds. Come and be our teacher. We need you. Like Dusty talked about, we need bread, we need cup, we need wine, we need you all the time. Desperate for you. Instead of being desperate for greatness, Lord, let us receive this teaching today and be desperate to be like your son Jesus. In his name we pray. So here it is, Matthew 18. Starts out in verse 1. I like the way that Matthew introduces this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I think we can assume from this question that this had a lot of baggage behind this question, right? There's been previous discussions, previous conversations going on. How do we know who stands In the middle, who reckons to get something out of this whole deal with Jesus? Who is going to get the greatest positions in this coming kingdom? In fact, we know that the twelve have argued about this. In Mark and in Luke, we know that what brings up this question is an argument about who's going to sit next to Jesus. In Mark 10, even James and John come to him and says, we would like to sit at your left and your right. In the kingdom. Who is the greatest they're asking? Who is the smartest? Who is better? Who's favored? Who does more chores at home? Who works the hardest at your job? Who gives the most at church? Whose seat is the most reserved in our building? (laughs) The question in Greek actually read, Who 
In the Greek it reads, who is mega? The Greek word for greatest is mega. Who's big, who's bad, who commands the most attention. Maybe, maybe the disciples are thinking, well, it's got to be Peter, James, and John. In chapter 17, they were just invited specifically out of the twelve to go up on the mountain. And there Jesus is transfigured. Maybe it's not those guys. Maybe it's Simon the Zealot. These guys are thinking this kingdom is going to come with power and a sword. That guy's an assassin. He's a zealot, an Ascari. Maybe it's Simon. Maybe it's just Peter himself. He's the spokesman, the old man of the group. The one who takes steps in Matthew 15, a few chapters before, out on the water with the Lord. Maybe it could even be the ones that are behind the scenes. The ones we don't think about. The ladies who are financing the ministry. Making this happen. But the question is, who is the greatest? I think we all know this question. Maybe we never asked it quite as brazenly as these disciples, but we ask it. How can I get noticed? Does she know I exist? Does he like me? Why do I keep getting overlooked for a raise or this promotion? What will it take for me to get what I want, to feel good about myself, what I've earned, what I deserve? Who's at the top? And you probably already know Jesus' answer. This is a familiar passage. We read it to children. We read it to children this morning. But I want us to dig into what Jesus does here. So you've got to think, what they're looking for is, Jesus, we want to know who sits in first chair. We want to know who you favor. We want to know who's getting first place. So let's pick it back up in verse 2. It says 20 on the screen. That's a typo. It says, He called a little child to Him. Place the child among them. So he goes and he gets a kid and he brings them right in the middle. I, I picture like a circle. And they're going, where's the spotlight? Who's in the middle of this thing? Who's going to stand by you? We're around you, Jesus is learning. We want to know who gets to stand shoulder to shoulder with you, Jesus. And he goes and gets a kid. And here's what he says. Truly I tell you, unless you change, or very literally the Greek reads, unless you turn around. The way you're going is not the right way unless you turn around and become like little children. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I tried to imagine what that would look like in here. You know, who's the greatest, Jesus? And if Jesus could show up in bodily form for us, then he'd go and he'd grow out there and he'd go grab one of our kids, Charlie, Maddie, uh, Asher, Wyatt, the Faith, Xander, Noah, uh, you know, maybe one of the babies, who knows. And he grabs up that kid and he brings him up on stage and he would say, this is greatness. This child. And unless you become like this child, you'll know nothing about the kingdom. See, what Jesus does here is, Again, as, he, as we're sitting at his feet as students, and he blows our minds, right? Because even the most knowledgeable of us, we, we know the answer, but yet when you really dig into this passage, you go, that's not how I would answer, right, church? Who's the greatest in this church? I wouldn't go, I wouldn't probably immediately say, well, it's, man, it's, it's, it's faith, because she's hilarious, you know? It's a child. He blows our minds. What he does is he takes our definition, our idea, our ideals of greatness and flips it. He turns it on its head. 
Our common wisdom would always say, well, kids, you need to grow up, right? Kids, you need to learn to work like adults. You need to start acting like we do. But Jesus, here's what he does. Instead of getting kids to be like adults, Jesus says to adults, how about you learn to be like children? It's a powerful teaching. And I know most of us have heard great sermons on this before. Great lessons have been taught on this about what child, children do to be childlike in their faith and their trust and their wonder. And that's all great stuff. I want to go a different little direction this morning. Because I want to look at the theology of what's behind this statement. That we should be like kids. To see what's there, what's more. Because Jesus' reason, his upside down lesson, is he's not just giving us a statement. He's given us a theology of how to view children. He's saying something about the nature of children. He's making a theological statement that goes against our common assumptions and especially goes against our common practices. So here was what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus around this theology of children. And it's that children, what Jesus is saying is that children, being great in the kingdom means that they have a capacity to know God They have agency to display God. And they have an awareness to teach all of us about God. So I'm going to unpack just those three really fast. So capacity and agency and awareness. So capacity. By placing a kid in the middle of the disciples and saying, be like this. He is teaching us that kids have capacity. To know God already. See, we often mistake in church, we think that kids are empty vessels in which one generation must simply pour their faith into the next. But kids are not empty molds that somehow have to learn from us their capacity to know God. They're already great in the kingdom because they already have a capacity. They are born with the capacity to know God. They're already born in the image of God. Right? And you know this. If you've ever brought a child into the world, what do you notice? There is capacity there, right? And maybe you're a parent or maybe you've forgotten. But that truth is displayed over and over. Right, parents? Anytime we try to teach our kids something that we really want them to be into, but they're really not into, and they're like, that's lame, right? Or they think, yeah, you're really into that because you're old, old man, right? Right? That's because they have a capacity that they're already uniquely made by God to do something maybe different than you. I saw a couple of weeks ago uh, Roger Fetter, tennis great Roger Fetter at Wimbledon. He's won Wimbledon out three times. He's got 20 Grand Slam titles. And he said, they were interviewing him at the start of Wimbledon, and he said, My own kids refuse to take a tennis lesson from me because they don't think I'm that good. <laughs> right? You know this. If you've ever tried to tell your kids something, right? That you are an expert in, they look at you and go, whatever. Now, I'm kind of picking on them, but I think about that in spiritual formation. Children are born in the image of God. They're image bearers. They know God. And yes, they are to learn from us, but the goal for children is not for them to be us. They are to be like Jesus. And so what we celebrate in children is that they have a capacity already. So faith building is not pouring myself 
It's letting children in their capacity walk with us to discover Jesus as well. It's different, isn't it? Second thing is that I think Jesus is showing us that kids in the middle, they are this greatness of the kingdom because they have agency. When Jesus puts the child among the disciples, what he's doing is he's he's, he's, uh, demonstrating that kids are not bystanders, passive bystanders to the kingdom, but they are active participants in the kingdom, right? Think about the imagery of that. Disciples come up, they huddle up, let's have a Jesus huddle, right? Who's the greatest, Jesus? Let me go get a kid and bring him right into the middle of it. They are active participants, not passive bystanders that we put on the side. Here's some other passages that speak to that truth. Matthew 19, and verse 4. Jesus said, let the little children, just this next chapter, this theme continues, right? Let the little children come to me and what? Do not hinder them. Don't put them on the sideline. Don't put them out. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And then also in Matthew 18, 6, this same passage that we just read, the next line. Ugh, this one, guys. Jesus says about these children, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Perhaps Jesus' most harsh words in all the Gospels Right here. Man, he has some harsh ones coming in chapter 23 for the Pharisees, and he has some harsh ones other times in Matthew 25 about sheep and goats. But right here, he goes, you know what? If children are actively walking along beside you, if you just kind of are like a church that says, eh, children are better, better not seen and not heard in our church, you know? <laughs> he goes, man, if you're keeping kids out from learning the rhythms of discipleship, and he says, you might as well go drown yourself. It is harsh. Jesus says this kingdom belongs to children. It's theirs. Back in 18.1, if you want to go back up there, Jesus said, unless you change, unless you 18.2, unless you change and become like children. And I already mentioned that that really means unless you really just, unless you turn around. Your version may say, unless you turn around. And I think what he's challenging me and what he's challenging us to do is let's turn our idea around about children. Because there's an immense difference between seeing children as passive church goers and seeing children as active participants, growing, relational, part of what we do. I love in our church family. I just thought about this this morning. I thought, you know, we don't really have an opening prayer as a church. Like an official opening prayer like a lot of other places do. And I thought, no, we do. It's led by a kid. A kid's Devo. And I love that. Right? What an awesome thing that we're giving our children, our young boys and our young girls, saying, we're giving you an opportunity to lead us through your prayers. And sometimes, almost every week, their prayers floor me, right? Amen, church? Because the kingdom belongs to them. This is vital. It's vital that we understand agency of our young people. 
It's vital for us as how we see children and our teens. That they're actively following Jesus with us, not waiting to follow Jesus later. When we relegate young people to the sidelines and say, you are the future church, what we are unknowingly saying to them is you don't matter. Right? You don't matter. You don't belong. And you can't practice your faith until you reach a certain age. Instead, Jesus is saying, walk with children. See that their agency lets them do incredible things. Children have capacity, they have agency. And that agency gives them maybe the best of what children are, right? That amazing, unique, innate ability that children have that is an awareness to teach us about God. Amen? Now you already know this. This is just anecdotally, we know this, right? If you've ever been a parent, I remember being uh, floored when Anderson was little bitty and uh, we didn't pray for dinner one night. He was old enough to talk, barely old enough to talk. I don't even think Coleman was on the scene yet, you know? And he was like, pray, pray. And I was like, oh. He's aware that we need to talk to God already as a two-year-old. And how many, how many parents have experienced that? Isn't that awesome? That's an awareness. This is the one we already know. The kids are often more aware than us of the presence and goodness of God. I saw this maybe for the first time I can remember in my life in college. We were late night baptism. Uh, a young lady in our campus ministry was ready to put on Christ. Uh, our campus minister was up there and he had his first son was with him. Harrison Dafford, little, he was little at the time, between two and three, I can't remember. He was just at that early talking age, super cute, super blonde hair. And as this young lady came out of the water, everybody celebrated, and then she went and dried off a little bit, and she came out, and everybody was circled up, and we were about to pray around her. And Harrison, with all this joy and all this wonder, was just looking at her and just had this nonstop contagious giggle. Like he was seeing the angels rejoice over her. It was bizarre, but yet it was the most, it was holy. There's just this young kid, just, I can't, I'm not going to imitate his laugh, because I'd sound like a maniacal idiot. But, <laughs> but it was just that, you know, a child's laughter that makes you smile. It was like he was seeing something that we could not. He had an awareness. So children are not just to be taught, Right? Often they are our teachers. We're reminded about our faith and about some of the best parts of discipleship from children. Wonder and awe and gratitude and joy and curiosity. I think one of the things that children bring to the church more than anything is the willingness to just go, let's go. What do parents and adults say? What do we do? Here's a new idea. What do we, first thing we think of, Right? Every reason we shouldn't do it, right? Come on, right? Yeah. And kids, we come up with a new idea. Let's, let's go serve somebody. They go, let's go. Right? That's why they're at the middle of the kingdom. That's why they belong. I love that. Just last Sunday, if you haven't seen this, I want to tell you just a few stories and we'll wrap up. Last Sunday, two of our young ladies, soon to be fifth grade girls, fifth graders, came up to me. It was... Uh, Amelia Jumper and Audrey Matthews. They approached me out in the foyer with smiles on their face and they said, hey, can we do a fundraiser for the people of Barrington? 
And I said, no, that's for the adults. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Of course, I was like, yes, whatever you guys want to do. And they had this wonder and this, they just want to help, right? And I thought, man, they get it. They're still thinking about this, even though maybe with tragedy and hardship, we often move on. They have an awareness that people still needed help. If you've been here on a Wednesday night recently for our Route 66 in here, and I know our ladies have been in other classes and stuff, you need to come on a Wednesday. This, is a, this isn't a plug for Wednesday night. This is a plug for coming to see children care about Scripture. We do this thing on Wednesday nights at 7 for 15 minutes where we just help our kids uh, know the books of the Bible and understand it. And you, oh, it's, it's, I love it. Parents, do you love it? I love the anticipation. The other day, uh, Faith Colwell, she was ready. She'd already done her New Testament books, but she had been working and working. She slept with a chalkboard in her bed that had written out all the books of the Old Testament. She was like, you know, like coaches, like, sleep with your football, boy. She's like, I'm going to sleep with the books of the Old Testament, right? Well, she, Trail had, had done the books of the uh, New Testament. He sat down, and before he even sat down, I was about to call Faith up. She Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I mean, she was so fired up. It was awesome. And then everybody just cheered, and the kids cheered. And, the, and uh, there's this tradition that has developed that Tyane gives them a T-shirt when they finish both their Old and New Testament books. And there's this tradition that I thought they were just leaving the little Route 66 time early, but what they do is they get that t-shirt and they run to the bathroom and they come back and they wear it because they're aware that God is doing something in them. Love that. That's how we learn from children. And then I got permission to share this one with you and I'll close with it. This is past school year. Faith's older sister, Sophia. I think on a Monday, had a really rough day. She's a baker. I won't tell you what a new girl in her class said to her. It's a little... I just, I just don't think it needs to be shared. It was very harsh. And evil. The girl said something horrible to her and then threw dirt in her face. Of course, there was talk about it. Some other students went and told a couple of the teachers, Mrs. Lee and Ms. Cavalier, about what had happened. And Mr. Quisenberry handled it so well and was very upset about what happened. The girl got in trouble for what she had said to Sophia. She even got in-school suspension for it. Um, it's tough. It's tough on Melissa and Cody to hear her daughter call those names. But Sophia wasn't real upset. So Friday, Melissa pulled up to the school of that same week. And there was Sophia walking shoulder to shoulder with that girl in the front door. That day she had brought a package of Skittles out of her lunch on Friday and gave it to the girl. All the teachers saw this, they were talking. 
wondered about this, and Melissa got Sophia in the car and asked, well, I want to know why you're doing that. And Sophia said this. She said, Mom, I told you Wednesday that we were told in Bible class that we should pray for people that are mean to us. And that we should, we should love everybody, and that we should be friends, even with our enemies. And then she said, and Gerald doesn't know how to be friends, so I'm going to show her how. That's the kingdom. I probably would have come up with a hundred excuses not to do anything. But Jesus says, you want to be great? Have a childlike faith and wonder where you walk into the world and you go, you know what? Whatever you say, Jesus, I'm going to do it. Because I trust that your way is the best way. And so I want us to know today that, man, what we're saying about children, when we go to summer school with Jesus, is Jesus is teaching us by putting that child in the middle. He's he's teaching us all those things. Kids have agency. They have wonder. They have capacity. They have awareness. But he's also teaching us that the table of the kingdom doesn't have a kid's section. This isn't Thanksgiving. This is a place where we're all walking and why I think this is so important to Jesus is because when we get that greatness question right, then we get an outreach question right. Who belongs in church? The lonely, the destitute, the hurting, the addict, everyone. Because greatness is not defined by who's got their stuff together. Greatness is defined by those who say, take it all. It's yours, that's what kids do. So this morning, I don't know where you're at. Man, let's be a church that's childlike, not childish. And wondering on, if you need anything today, man, confession and the needs and the asking for prayers of the church is childlike. Childish is saying, oh, I don't need anything. Because I'm tough. I don't hug people and I don't say I love you. You're childish. Childlike is, man, I need help. Because I, I can't get it together. I'm struggling this week. And then, Jesus says, that's great. If you need anything today, we're here for you. Let's stand together as coordinators. Praise the one who all that sings flow.